Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Stone's Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to Boston. It's July 18th, 1972. The city's in flames. The Rolling Stones were due on stage at the Garden hours ago. Those two facts aren't related. At least not yet. But if they don't arrive soon, the 18,000 pissed off Stones fans are liable to smash the venue into firewood and stage a mass bonfire to compete with the unrelated riot in Southie. The only two men who can prevent this, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, are currently in jail an hour away in Rhode Island. Keith got nabbed earlier that evening for taking a swing at a photographer who dared to pop a flashbulb in his face when he was trying to take a nap. According to the rules of the Rock and Roll Road, this is a perfectly acceptable response, but the Warwick, Rhode Island police felt differently. Mick tried to back him up and got dragged along too, along with several other members of their entourage. The cops were taking it pretty seriously for such a ridiculous offense. Keith couldn't help but chuckle when he was told to remove his ties, shoes, and belt at booking. As if one of the Rolling Stones would hang himself for telling a pesky paparazzo where he could shove his lens cap. Each of the not-so-guilty party were placed in small, dark, four-by-six cells. And there, on a hard slap bench, while an adoring crowd calls their name some 50 miles away, they sit. Criminals. Desperados. Is this where the road has brought them? Is this how America treats its visiting rock royalty? With the chain and the padlock and the mug sheet? Is it? Unsure what else to do, 
they start making conversation. Say, bro, one of the entourage calls to a neighboring cellmate. What are you in for? Hey, it always worked in the movies. Uh, they say I killed the chick. Everyone gets quiet. She wanted some smack, so I gave it to her. I didn't tell her how much to take. OD ain't my fault. Christ. Did you hear that, Mick? Mick? Mick who, man? Jagger. You kidding me? The guy's almost afraid to believe it. Mick Jagger ain't here, is he? Just a few doors down. Hey, Mick, say hello to this guy. Uh, yeah, hey, how you doing, man? Jagger says from the shadows of his cell. Jesus, I can't believe it. It is Mick Jagger. Honest to Christ, me and Mick in the same jail. Say, do you think I could have your autograph? When they're sprung later that night, Mick obliges. Prison's no place to make enemies, after all. Under arrest as recently as an hour ago, the newly released Mick and Keith receive a police escort to Boston. They sweep into the city like a conquering army, and the city's in ruins. Out of the right-hand windows, all they can see is an orange glow. Wow, everyone thinks. The kids have gotten so pissed off with waiting that they've finally done it. They've taken a torch to the home of the Bruins, Celtics, and various ice shows and turned it into a raging inferno. And now it's burning like the Reichstag. A radio DJ agrees and plays a German Umbal march as a dark joke. Limos speeding through the hot, humid city streets as a Puerto Rican neighborhood goes up in flames with German martial music blaring from the radio. It's too outrageous to be real. That description comes courtesy of Robert Greenfield, the legendary rock journalist who served as Rolling Stone magazine's dedicated Stones correspondent as a 20-something in the early 70s. After accompanying the band on the road, he chronicled their arrest in his groundbreaking 1974 book, STP, A Journey Through America with the Rolling Stones. In a sense, the bus couldn't have come at a better time. Just when it seemed like the band were getting a little too cozy with the establishment, a reminder of their inherent rebel nature was almost helpful. Except for the part where it risked burning down a major city. In addition to Greenfield and his never-before-heard tape archive of the Stones and their exile on Main Street era glory, we'll also be joined by his friend and tourmate Gary Stromberg, a rock PR supremo who's represented a whole jukebox of the 20th century's greatest artists. He was there with the Stones in jail on the day Boston went up in flames. My name's Jordan Runtog, and this is the Stones Touring Party. The vibes in the Rolling Stones' private jet are bad, or at least as bad as vibes in a private jet can possibly be. A technical problem is causing some kind of important-looking liquid to leak onto the wing. The plane is taxied up and down the runway at Montreal's airport twice before the brakes are slammed and everything comes to a screeching, jarring, swerving halt. Some get mad, but Mick Jagger, he gets terrified. At this stage, air travel still outranks ODs as the number one fatal rock and roll hazard, and Mick repeatedly reminds everyone in earshot that takeoff is the most dangerous part of any flight. Their entire weekend in Canada was just as stressful, 
On Saturday, they played Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens, where the police came out in undue force. The band arrived at their dressing room only to find hundreds of yards worth of cops sitting at picnic tables three rows deep, munching chicken dinners. Jagger's displeased. What are all those pigs doing out there? He yells to tour manager Peter Rudge, loud enough for the cops to hear. Mick, it must be said, doesn't take kindly to cops. The next few days would only reinforce this feeling. I detest them, you know, I really hate cops. Ooh, there's so many cops on this tour, aren't there? I mean, you got to see the cream of America's police force. I, I really hate them, you know. I'm afraid. I, I just, I, I can't, I just can't bring myself to, I mean, I'm prepared to believe there's nice people that are cops, you know, but, you know, there's nice people that are murderers, too, you know. So a lot of cops beat up a lot of kids, you know. So I, so even I did, you know. I mean, and I couldn't do nothing about it, man. I was nothing I could do. Morale continued to plummet once the concert began. The heat from the 1,500-watt spotlights, which kept the stage at an unseasonably warm 140-something degrees, finally became too much for Keith Richards. The man who subjected himself to all manner of bodily punishment daily became overcome with heat exhaustion. He lumbered off stage, took three steps towards the dressing room, and fainted dead away. Most of the crew laugh. They assume it's a prank. He's kept an extra night in Toronto, while the rest of the band move on to their next port of call, Montreal. They arrived with a sense of relief. The European-style city was comforting to the Stones and their English compliment. The hotel was top-notch, and they spent a rare day off lounging around in altered states of consciousness, thumbing through the Gideon's Bibles in their nightstands and sampling the ribs with brown gravy from room service. Then, just after 3 a.m., it happened. Gary Stromberg gets the call from tour manager Peter Rudge, who delivers the news in his inimitable rapid-fire Cambridgean accent. Gary, Rudjo here. This is rather important. Could you come down the hall? We've been bombed. I love him calling you and saying, Could, Gary, can you come down here? We've been bombed. <laughs> like, what am I, what is Gary going to do? Clean up the shrapnel? You know what I mean? And he would not have said it as calmly as you just no, said No, he it. was yelling. <laughs> He'd be screaming. He'd be screaming. Yes. Where are you? Why like, aren't you here? Yeah, why didn't you stop this? <laughs> why didn't you throw your body on that bomb? Your yeah, job, that yeah. was, Rudge's deal was, you jumped on the grenade. Yeah. If you were on this tour, your job was to protect... Anything make... that went wrong was somebody's fault. And it wasn't that there were outside elements that were out of our control. And this is something somebody who was on the edge of obsessive-compulsive in terms of every possible thing. Detail, that could... yeah. But nobody could have anticipated this. Persons unknown have placed dynamite underneath one of the Stones' equipment trucks parked outside the Montreal Forum. Fortunately, no one's hurt. The driver, who usually sleeps in the rig, is off somewhere, which saves him from a nasty surprise, if not actual death. The damage is minimal. All it does is destroy a loading ramp, blow a 4x8 hole in the bottom of the truck, disintegrate all the cones in the speaker cabinets, and shatter rows of windows in nearby apartment buildings. But still, it's a bomb, which is very unsettling, to say the least. Even more troubling, no one's sure who did it and why. When Mick Jagger is woken up and told of the attack, one of the first things he says is, why the hell didn't they leave a note? 
I remember saying something to the effect that this was the dumbest bomber ever because he put the bomb underneath the ramp instead of underneath the truck. truck. And we didn't understand the motivation at all for why these guys were doing it. Were they after the stones or were they after, you know, what were they after? These were separatists, I think. Most in the SDP organization assume this was the work of the notoriously militant French-Canadian separatist activists fighting to liberate the French-speaking province of Quebec from the British Commonwealth and form an independent nation. But the local law enforcement take offense when Peter Rudge dares to suggest this theory. Oh no, monsieur, he replies with classic Gallic outrage. Say what American draft dolger. They are all over the place. They come up here with impunity. Chaos had become so normalized during the tour that the bombing almost didn't register as a serious threat. For bassist Bill Wyman, it was merely an inconvenience. Here he is talking to Robert Greenfield back in 1972 courtesy of the Northwestern University Archives. I was a bit surprised that they, when they came in and said a bomb went off under the track. All I could think about was, are the guitars all right? And the amplifiers, it must get smashed. So I was thinking, wow. And then it, a little half an hour later, I sort of started thinking, you know, a bomb went off in the truck. You don't know what's happening. I mean, you're always open to being shot on stage. You're always aware of that. I mean, you're so wide open. You don't think about it, but anybody with any sense at all is going to think there's a possibility at some time or other. Before the end of the day, Montreal radio stations and newspapers received more than 50 calls from would-be bombers claiming credit. One said that the truck bomb was the first of four time to go off at intervals during the day. The Stone Show was delayed by nearly an hour while bomb squads searched the place inside and out multiple times. Though it had been gradually pushed to the back of the STP tour's collective mind as the trek wore on, the danger from the Hells Angels hadn't diminished. The motorcycle gang felt that the Stones had let them take the fall for the deadly outcome at the Altamont concert during their last U.S. trip in 1969. And ever since, they'd threatened retribution in the form of Mick Jagger's head. Rumors flooded the underground that they planned to kidnap the singer, or worse. Needless to say, the bombing brought these fears back to the forefront, at least for Mick. He mentioned it constantly during the day, worried that the angels, or at least someone, planned to wage an attack during the concert. In Montreal, it was was really scary, man. The bomb was frightening. Yeah, you know, because I was frightened, frightened, you know, I wasn't only frightened, you know, just for myself, you know, and I was frightened for everybody, you know, like, I mean, that some motherfucker was going to put a bomb in a hole, you know, like in the middle of the show, you know, some kids were going to get hurt, you know, and all that, you know, especially in Montreal, that's what I thought was going to happen, I mean, I was really scared that that everyone, that the audience was going to get hurt, you know, as well as us. Keith Richards took it all a lot less personally than his bandmate. Mick was nervous about Montreal because of the dynamiting of the truck, but... You weren't impressed by the dynamiting of the truck? Yeah, it was a fucking truck, yeah. When they dynamited the truck, the only thing I thought of was, well, they've done their bit, you know, that's it. You, know. you, didn't, I mean, you didn't think, hey, they might... No, I jump. mean, obviously, I mean, I just figured that, right, you know, they think, right, the Rolling Stones are coming, let's make a, something out, let's get our bit of publicity out of it, you know. You know, and they go through all the various things they can do and eventually decide to dynamite one of our trucks while it's parked in the dead of night. You know, if that's all they can do, they're not going to be able to manage to come in and blow the fucking stage up. 
Keith ended up being right. The show itself goes off mostly peacefully, but the audience doesn't make it easy. The band are in the middle of all down the line when suddenly Mick hears a heart-stopping pop. Could be a firecracker, but this doesn't sound like any firecracker he's ever heard. He keeps singing until pop, another. Mick drops to one knee, but he plays it off like he's dancing. Then another pop, exactly the same interval, as if someone were aiming and firing. There was bomb threats, and it was a very tense concert. In the course of that show, there was some kind of explosive. It it was probably a firecracker that went off, but I never saw Jagger react so suddenly and in such a frightening way as he did when he heard that thing, because he was very well aware of the threats. He felt like there was a threat of him being assassinated in that show, and this firecracker went off. He just reacted like it's so startled and frightened. The pops stop, and he keeps going until he faces a new paranoia come to life. A large 40-ounce glass bottle flying straight towards him. He jackknives out of the way, but it grazes his leg. He never stops singing, but it's clear he's pissed. His truck has been bombed, people are mimicking gunshots with firecrackers, and now they're throwing bottles at him? He gestures to Keith to end the song. The rest of the set is abbreviated, and the house lights are turned on prematurely to help spot threats. All he wants to do is finish the show and leave. Exiting the venue proved its own unique challenge. Some 3,000 ticketless young people lobbed rocks, bottles, and bricks at the building and police, and set fire to a TV news truck. In all, the Montreal show wound up being a sweaty mess. A reporter for the Canadian magazine Weekend caught Mick in his dressing room, looking tired and washed out. Not good, man, Mick said. The show wasn't good. Everyone was eager to put this STP chapter behind them. Which is why it made a twisted sort of karmic sense that their jet would be stuck at Montreal airport, unable to take off. The air conditioning doesn't work while the plane's on the ground, so everything continues to be a sweaty mess. They pass the time by playing a ragged game of football on the tarmac, which proves difficult since no one can agree on whether or not they're playing the American or European version. The ladies of the STP crew form an ad hoc cheer squad. They commandeer the plane's emergency bullhorn to amplify their chance of, Richards, Richards, he's our man. If he can't do it, Jagger can until airport security demands that everyone reboard their aircraft and stay there. It takes two more hours for the plane to make it into the sky, bound for Boston. It looks like the show is going to be late tonight. Halfway through the flight, the pilot gets word that Boston's Logan Airport is fogged in. So instead, he steers the plane towards Theodore Francis Green Airport in Warwick, Rhode Island. There, the travails of Canada will look like a tea party. The STP crew don't know it, but it was all about to get so much worse. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The Rolling Stones plane has just touched down in Warwick, Rhode Island. They were due on stage in Boston half an hour ago. It doesn't take a seasoned road warrior like the Stones' Bill Wyman to know that this is less than ideal. We came in there, the plane was diverted. It's the only time anything ever went wrong. And it went completely wrong, as is always the case. And we had to wait an hour, and we're sitting around waiting, and we're not kicking in fire engines or smashing windows. We're sitting there, and we're chatting with customs guys and whatever, and walking about, perfectly happy. Tour manager Peter Rudge is at a loss. For all his meticulous planning, he hasn't devised a procedure for landing in places you weren't supposed to land in. Half the people on the plane don't even know they're not in Massachusetts. They've gotten so used to rolling off the plane and into limos that they just assume it's going to happen again. It isn't, unless they can round up a bus company that'll take them some 50 miles to Boston. Having come from Canada, the inflated entourage must also pass through immigration services. It's time they truly can't afford to spend. There they stand, the Stones touring party, peaceably spacing out on the airport runway. Then, suddenly, their chaotic reverie is interrupted by a man with a camera strolling across the pavement. A snake has just entered their STP garden. His name is Andy Dickerman. The 30-year-old was midway through his 3 to 11 shift at the Providence Journal when he got the call that the Stones were landing in Green Airport. This excites Andy Dickerman. He's a longtime Stones fan. In fact, a poster of the band holds a place of honor in his dining room. He makes for his car and heads to the airport, where he's greeted by the not inconspicuous sight of an Electra 2 prop jet with a giant tongue painted on the side. 35mm camera in hand, he marches over. Gary Stromberg spots him immediately. 
As the Stones' press officer, he plays his position and leaps to their defense. Everybody was tired and in kind of foul moods. And part of my job was to manage the press, and I confronted him, and I told him that he, wasn't, he couldn't do this. And he said he had every right to do it, and he pushed me aside and started shaking f- photographs. And Leroy, the security guy, went up to him and said, you, you know, you can't do this, man, started defending me. But, I mean, Dykeman was an unlikely. He wasn't that aggressive. He wasn't paparazzi. He was in the wrong place at the wrong no, time. No, he was aggressive. Yeah, he was okay. very belligerent. Okay, well. I have the right to be the, to do this. You can't deny right. me. And Leroy was trying to be very civil with him, as Leroy was at, with everybody at first. I mean, he was just very quiet. You can't do this. And he was very menacing. Drummer Charlie Watts' assessment was even less generous. But he was a cunt for doing everything along the line he was a cunt for. Okay. He arrives at the place, takes a photo, off he goes. Then he's back behind the tractor, clicking on his seat. Go, man, don't fuck about. We're trying to get to this, we've got a gig, man. Right. 20,000 people and we're two hours late. We don't want him around, right. Yeah. That's it, forget it. you go away, man, because we've done it. You've done the photos, you've been told no, no, that's it. Then, which is always what happens, he becomes a pointed principal. This little cunt is still here. He doesn't want photo, he wants an incident with photos. And uh, got what he wanted, he came for that. But the minute Gary went over and said, where's your press card, who'd you work for? It was over because we knew what he was doing. He's like, have you ever been to Rome? That's what he wants. Yeah, anything, you know. I mean, they'd get a camera broken. Just to get a picture. And a bit of bread. And that's the situation. Robert Greenfield spoke to the soft-spoken photographer in 1972 to get his side of the story. Here he is, courtesy of our friends at the Northwestern University Archives. We walked over a little closer. They started to get angry, especially Gary. Told me I, I couldn't take pictures or I shouldn't do it. Explained to them that I could take pictures. That was, it was uh, public property, right? And they, they uh, I was permitted to take pictures by law. Well, they, they tried to stop me in various ways. And was, uh, started threatening me also. Uh, vicious threats, by the way, by, by a lot of people concerned. Just stand back a moment and think in these circumstances. What are their rights? What are mine? Mm-hmm. And then if, if I have the rights, would it hurt them very much? But everybody I spoke to said that you were really aware that you had rights. I mean, you said oh, you yeah. weren't going to be pushed around. If you, you know, if you knew some law, also people, oh, you know, that's true. Right. They, but obviously you, you, you know, you felt that you had the right to take pictures. Those close to the stones can sense a confrontation coming. Someone wants something they're not prepared to give. And sooner or later, someone will have a guitar or a bottle swung at his head, or his camera grabbed and thrown out a window. Members of the entourage, including guitarist Mick Taylor, tried to appeal to the pesky photographer's basic sense of humanity. Hey, it had been a tough day. They were stressed, they were busy, and they were on a time crunch. Maybe not now? You have to bear in mind that we got up very, very early that morning. We missed the plane. We were all extremely tired. You know, tempers were very frayed. We, we tried to prevent him several times from bothering us because, you know, we were so tired and all we were concerned about was getting our baggage into the bus and driving up to Boston because we were already an hour late. And uh, he was there for an hour anyway taking photographs and he still refused to leave. 
In fact, Dickerman doubled down by dragging over a nearby policeman to enforce the freedom of the press. Why, they're on public property and they're public figures. There's no reason he shouldn't be allowed to take some pictures. The cops, who don't appear to be Stones fans, agree with him and inform the band that their hands are tied. There's nothing they can do to stop him from taking photos. All right, fine, they say. Take them and leave. How many shots do you want? Dickerman refuses to give an inch to these people. I don't know how many I need, he says. I want to stay here and take as many as I have to. I, I did explain to him, I believe, that uh, I needed to get one or two decent pictures. And uh, I had shot many pictures up till then without one good picture. And with one or two good pictures, I would have gone. I had work to do, and I didn't want to stay around. I, I don't get the, uh, uh, the thrill of being near important people or other people. Uh, it just happens so often in my job that uh, it doesn't mean very much to me. They're just people. And uh, actually, often when I'm covering something, when I'm working, I tend to be blasé and, and, uh, just to put down anybody who's important. Sensing that this man is beyond all reason, the Stones engage in an antagonistic game of hide-and-seek on the tarmac. The band members do everything they can to foil the photographer by hiding their faces or ducking behind other members of the crew. At one point, Mick creeps up behind him and sticks his tongue out. But he's gone before Dickerman can raise his camera. Gary Stromberg and the SDP security team swarm the guy like a collapsing zone defense on a basketball court. To the even-keeled Bill Wyman... It's all become a little farcical. The police said you can't stop him taking pictures. So we said, all right, let him take his pictures. And we just all turned our backs every time he came near us. And uh, Stan Moore and Leroy and a few other people just stood in front of him. Wherever he went, they stood in front of him. And he was still trying to flash off shots between their legs and round, you know, he'd run to the right and take a quick flash at the back of Mick's head and things like that. And this went on and on for 20 minutes. I mean, this wasn't one incident. This went on and on and on. He started getting very impatient, called the cops, and the cops started to remove the people away from him, saying that you cannot stop him. So our people had to move away. Then he started coming around doing pictures. We were still turning our heads, which they can't stop you doing. Then he saw Keith sitting over by a fire engine, right way away. I mean, he was 40 yards away sitting on a fire engine seat, you know, quite tired and on his own, over he went, straight up to Keith and flashed this camera in his face. The photographer has poked the bear. Keith was reclining calmly on the bumper of a fire truck, taking in some chemically-assisted rest before the gig. Needless to say, he didn't take kindly to a flashbulb exploding a foot in front of his face. Suddenly I saw this photographer again approaching me after he'd already been sort of pissed off, you know. Because one of these pictures taken particularly, not by him at that particular moment. And his flash went and uh, I had in my hand, I had that scarf that I was always wearing and uh, I had a bag in my other hand and uh, there was a belt over my arm. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of other things, but I mean, it wasn't just the belt, you know, it wasn't... Swung uh, everything. I just had everything at my hand, I just went, As I had my back to him, I had no idea exactly how close he was. And, uh, I mean, really, it was just a gesture, you know, for which I was promptly arrested. The photographer made a lot of noise that Keith Richards had assaulted him and possibly broken his camera with his belt. But Bill Wyman strenuously denied it when speaking to Robert Greenfield shortly after the fact. 
He took his belt off and he swung it round his legs. And it went round his legs. And he didn't do it back end first or anything. He just swung it round his legs and probably uttered a few curses. I was too far away. And said, why don't you, you know, or whatever. Charlie Watts also denied the charge. He didn't get in. No, he hit the He camp. didn't. He, no, he just caught him. If he'd have got it, he wouldn't have got up and we'd have taken him out. Do you know what I mean? And put him on a car home. And it's not being very violent. You know what I mean? I'm not being... Because I don't think people need to be, but he was just... He, that's what he wanted. Whatever the case, the nearby policemen have had enough of this nonsense. That's it, the disgusted sergeant says. Put that man under arrest. Two cops bend Keith's arms behind his back, slap on a pair of cuffs, and frog march him towards a police van parked in front of the airport. In an instant, it becomes clear to one and all that this is no longer a game. Mick follows in hot pursuit, but his diplomatic skills have deserted him in this crucial moment. All that remained was his blind hatred of cops. I, you know, I got really mad because you know, they weren't big cops. You know. If they hadn't had no guns or nothing, I would have just had really had a go. Leroy tried to stop me because he felt they was going to club me. I think they probably would. Oh, they would have clubbed me. They would have loved it. Keith, in a rare position as the sensible one of the two, hears the commotion from inside the police van. And I hear Mick suddenly raising his voice outside saying, you stupid. I tried to say to the copper that it was very silly that you know they were gonna arrest him, you know, that they they should really not arrest him. If they want to charge him, they should charge him, but they shouldn't arrest him physically, you know, Because it was only gonna make a big hassle. But I mean they wouldn't listen, you know. So then they just jumped on me, you know. All hell breaks loose when Jagger gets arrested. Gary Stromberg and tour manager Peter Rudge are yelling and gesticulating. Tour documentarian Robert Frank is filming, and his crew is running around with mics getting sound. Rolling Stones Records chief Marshall Chess marches up to the cops and bellows, You stupid assholes! This seemed like an invitation to the boys in blue, and they oblige him with a pair of cuffs. They also scoop up Stan Moore, part of the Stone's security team. The arrests seem almost random. The rest of the Stones all starting to, well, they were talking, you know, loud and they were mad, you know, but trying to reason with the cat as well at that time, you know. Are you saying anything or are you just saying Me, no, I was saying a thing, man. I got the cuffs on. There's no point in me saying anything. Cops just went, you know, right, anybody that opened their mouth was under arrest. That's all there was to it, you know. I mean, it was just, it didn't matter what they said, how, you know, or anything, it was just under arrest. STP crew are getting collared left and right. Suddenly, it becomes almost a badge of honor to get arrested. Sax player Bobby Keys, Keith's frequent co-conspirator on the road, actively tries to get himself hauled away. Hey, there's an authentic jailhouse rock scene going down with his buddies, and he's determined to be a part of it. Y'all better take me in now, he tells the cop, cause as soon as you leave, I'ma bust that little guy right in the mouth. So save yourself a trip and take me now. 
to Bobby's immense anger, they ignore him. They're too focused on Robert Frank, the man with the camera. Best to take him in, too, just to cover themselves and impound that camera as evidence. Then, just as they were about to leave, they suddenly realized that there would be evidence to this whole affair, you know. So they both jumped on Robert Frank, and they were unnecessarily rough with Robert, you know. They started pushing him up the steps to the paddy wagon, and he fell over, and they sort of hauled him up and pushed him in again, you know, and he fell over again. It was their technique, you know, so that they could say that you caught, you know, making a scuffle or causing a disturbance. The remaining stones in their entourage watched in bewilderment as the police van pulls away from the airport. It was a nightmare worse than anything the STP tax squad has ever dreamed of. The band were due on stage in Boston an hour ago. Now they were 50 miles away with no transport, and their twin frontmen had just been hauled off to jail. Bummer. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Stage managers at the Boston Garden are facing the quintessential show business crisis. A packed house and no act. Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and assorted members of the Stones' entourage have just been booked at a police station an hour away in Warwick, Rhode Island. Charges range from assault obstructing a police officer, and assaulting a police officer. A felony. This might take a while. According to Keith, there were genuine concerns that, for only the second time in their career, they'd miss the gig. 
When we first got there, they were very, very casual and nonchalant. Mm -hmm. Sort of saying, uh, well, I don't, you know, you won't get out tonight. Nobody's ever got out of this jail after 8 o'clock in the evening, you know, because judge so-and-so always, you know, right. always doing this on Friday or whatever night it was, you know. So we were sort of thinking, well, maybe we won't get out, you know. And that was a real drag, you know. But, I mean, really, we were more interested in trying to get that across to these cops in this tiny little town, you know. And we were trying to tell them, you know, there was like 17,000 people waiting. Chip Monk, the Stone stage manager, is desperately stalling for time. He begs Stevie Wonder, the opening act, to go back out there for an extended encore. He plays a little bit more, but it's obvious that the crowd isn't there to see him. So he leaves. Chip is forced to bluff it. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for Stevie Wonder. That's all he's got. He does three or four of these, aware that now he has no one to bring on. For the first time in nearly two months, there are no five Rolling Stones in the dressing room warming up. But Chip's confident. After all, as the MC at Woodstock, he led 400,000 people through rainstorms and bad acid trips. Surely 18,000 will be a piece of cake. Unsure what else to do, he does what many greats have done in times of trouble. He lies. Please be advised, he tells the crowd, that we've got an equipment failure that'll take at least 30 minutes of work. We apologize for the inconvenience. It's received about as well as he could hope. Lots of boos and off-color suggestions. For now, 18,000 expectant rock fans toss frisbees back and forth, suck on joints, read comic books, drink wine, drop reds, and eat candy. At the moment, they're merely bored, but this will soon curdle into annoyance, which then begets rage and ultimately violence. This is something that Boston Mayor Kevin White is desperate to avoid. It hasn't been a good week for the 41-year-old politician. Days earlier, Kevin waited by his phone for presidential candidate George McGovern to call and confirm his status as his vice presidential running mate. When the call came, Kevin learned he didn't get the gig. Damn politics. Three days later, in Boston's South End, cops bust up a Puerto Rican Day celebration after the revelry gets a little too rowdy. The arrests are handled, in short, poorly, and the crowd takes to the streets. The tactical police force is called in, resulting in 35 arrests, 27 injuries, and one flaming police car. Rumors spread like, well, wildfire throughout the South End's Puerto Rican community. Stories of cops hurling racial slurs at kids or beating old men with soda bottles until their faces were masks of blood. It's the classic vicious cycle of urban riots. The night's flames are fanned by rumors from earlier in the day. When the sun goes down, the crowd gathers again. They firebomb and loot two stores. And when fire engines roll up to fight the blaze, they fling rocks and bottles at the firemen. Mayor White heads to Southie himself, strolling the neighborhood in his shirt sleeves and hoping in vain that he can help quell the violence personally by hearing people out but it's no use. Advisors inform him that there's a new outbreak of trouble down on Brookline and Washington streets. And oh yeah, the Rolling Stones are under arrest in Rhode Island. 
and 18,000 surly kids are getting antsy at the garden. He truly doesn't need this right now. Sitting in their jail cell on the next state over, the Stones also feel unjustly attacked and persecuted, albeit in a very different way and on a completely different scale than the Puerto Rican inhabitants of South Boston. From the moment they emerged as public figures in the mid-60s, the Stones were tagged as punks. Certainly some of this was their own doing. A dude like Keith Richards would have it no other way. But much of it was the press, desperate to find someone to wear the black hat against England's favorite sons, the Beatles. And some of it also came down to good old-fashioned prejudice. The hair alone instantly singled them out as undesirables. Remember, this was a time when long locks on men appeared to signal the total breakdown of law and order, and possibly the end of Western civilization as we know it. It was enough to get you spat on, or even worse. The Beatles' pudding basin hairdos were amusing, little more than a novelty, really. But the Stones' even shaggier mops were grotesque. A young David Bowie would vividly remember going to see one early Stones gig, which was momentarily derailed by a heckler. Hey, you! The disgruntled man yelled at Mick. Why don't you get your hair cut? Mick stared him down and oh so coolly replied, Well, it looked like you. As Bill Wyman recalled, the battle lines were drawn from the earliest days of their career. Yeah, they're, they're always, everybody tried to get us. The papers always tried to get us. Every, every country, as I said, when we first went anywhere, that was the scene. We were all freaks, we were all morons. And we needed teaching a lesson. That was the, the general idea from every source, you know, every policeman, every hotel manager. Because they bunch everybody together, you know. And it's always happened. It happens with homosexuals, it happens with everything. They all bunch together. No, there's no special reasons or no individuality at all. If you're black, you're black. There's no good ones. They're all bad. But it's still there all the time. You're still aware of it, that two people over on that table over there are whispering about you saying, look at that idiot, when they have never said a word to you. Bill's hair indirectly caused one of the band's earliest legal hassles. It occurred on March 18, 1965, when the Stones were driving home after a London concert. Nature was calling, and Bill insisted they stop at a gas station. The attendant, not liking the cut of Bill's jib, or more likely the cut of his hair, claimed there was no bathroom. Bill found this hard to believe. The building was huge. There was really no bathroom? He returned with his bandmates for backup and politely restated his request. This time, the attendant screamed at them to leave. By this point, Bill was bursting, so he relieved himself on the side of the building. His fellow stones joined him in solidarity amid chants of, We'll piss anywhere, man! Harmless hijinks, really, but hostilities were so high that the station attendant actually called the police, and the stones were found guilty of that most British of offenses, insulting behavior. Suddenly, the stones had a bona fide criminal record, and the illegal peeing was splashed, metaphorically speaking, all across the British tabloids. From then on, the press and the authorities were resolutely against them, and in fact conspiring against them. It came to a head on February 12, 1967, 
when a squad of 19 British police raided Keith Richards' country home, Redlands, where a small gathering was taking place. It's believed the cops were tipped off by the News of the World, a tabloid Mick was suing for libel at the time, for printing stories claiming that he hosted wild drug parties. Clearly, the idea was to catch him in the act at a wild drug party. Though it was a party that day at Redlands, and there were drugs, it wasn't especially wild. The group were lounging around the living room when the police arrived, coming down from a day-long acid trip. Keith would remember it as a lovely day and a really unpleasant evening. He was still a little high when the knock came. The failings of cops looked like a group of dwarves to him. They turned the place upside down, looking for illicit substances, confiscating incense and little bars of hotel soap. The contraband they came up with was fairly minimal. Some old marijuana roaches, a handful of amphetamine pills legally obtained in Italy, and some heroin found in the pocket of a non-stone. But the legal repercussions were big. The press, predictably, had a field day. The drug score was eh, a little underwhelming, so they played up the fact that Mick's then-girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, had just taken a bath and was found by cops wrapped in a fur rug as a towel for some reason. This morphed into a truly obscene story, now part of rock myth, involving a candy bar used as a sex toy. Even in the midst of national humiliation and the full weight of the English justice system against them, the stones remained unrepentant. Keith and Mick get busted at Redlands. They're all on acid with Marion Faithful. And no, there was no Mars bar soaked with LSD in a place I will not mention, uh, having to do with Marianne, a sweet, lovely girl that she was, you know. Uh, so it's, and then the Stones, you know, when they're on trial, are so defiant, you know. Uh, when he's being cross-examined by the Queen's Council, Keith says, we are not old men. We do not concern ourselves with petty morals. Oh, my God, you said this in London in Old Bailey? Like, dude, they didn't take it, you know? And then the portrait Gary and I are both painting today is really, it's a rebel band. Outlaw, punk, up your you-know-what. James Dean. And they didn't fake it. Where Mick came to this attitude, I don't know, based on his background. I get it with Keith. Didn't know his father. Father disappeared, you know? But he grew up okay, you know, he was at art college. He wasn't sleeping rough on the streets. They were pissed off. And that attitude characterizes the music, you know, hey, you get off of my cloud. And satisfaction, the ultimate anthem of we're not happy, we don't know why, we don't like you. I'm talking about another generation. That's what satisfaction is about. It's like, why don't I feel good about what I have? You know, it's the ultimate Teenage, really, still. It's aged, it's weathered, but the point is it hasn't vanished by 72. They are the sum total of all their experience. Again, you can't look at 72 without looking at 65, 66, what came before and what came after. This is all circular and all of one piece. So on that Redlands bus, they got hit with sentences, six months or a year in jail for Keith and Mick, right? And they took Keith to Wormwood Scrubs, which is no joke, my friend, okay? One of my other favorite great quotes is, Keith starts screaming, I got bail, you bastards, let me out. Okay, so no jail could hold 
<laughs> Keith Richards, basically. And the point is, it wasn't just bravado. It wasn't just on stage stuff. They were punished. They were on trial. They were sent to prison. They defied the law in court and after. It didn't serve anything. They didn't even serve a day. It's just interesting to me. You know what I mean? That they put the money where their mouth was and they had real life experience that not that many bands, not that everybody should have this, but if you play this game, you're going to pay the price. And they did. Mick and Keith went free on appeal for the 1967 Redlands bust, but not before the British establishment made a very public example of them. In the end, it meant that the whole band, and especially Keith, would be constantly scrutinized by the police and press. Under the microscope was no way for Keith Richards, a rebel, and it must be said, an addict, to live. Consequently, he was arrested frequently, often for victimless crimes. As he'd later say, the cops turned me into a criminal. It's a band with a legal record here, you know, bad bust. You know. Got busted in Chelsea for this the great one where the cops broke in, the constable, and Keith had these spoons that were crusted with heroin outside of the bed, and it was a cold cup of coffee, and he started stirring the coffee to get the heroin off the spoon, and the detective said, eh, don't bother, Keith, we've already got more than enough to... <laughs> he got busted with firearms in England. He had a rifle and a sword. These repeated arrests piled up, compounding one another. Before long, his reputation began to precede him, making his right to a fair trial and fair treatment all but impossible. It also had the unfortunate effect of rubbing off on the rest of the band. It is practically impossible for the Rolling Stones to be judged through the usual channels of justice or whatever you want to call it. I mean, really, the press and, uh, and to a certain extent, the public have, have made the Rolling Stones outside of the law, not above it, but outside of it. For you to be a special thing in somebody's head, you know, makes it impossible for you to really be treated fairly, you know. Of course, especially when they start issuing warrants, you know, and the, the press are really, I've got to take a fair load of that, you know, for their way of handling things and their greed. As far as Bill Wyman was concerned, the Rhode Island arrest was just another example of their reputation preceding them. Everyone always assumed they must be in the wrong. After all, they're those nasty rolling stones. Well, that was absurd. That was a typical example of that. I mean, sometimes we're so innocent, it's unbelievable. I'm not, no bullshit, man. We're so innocent, we've done nothing. We know what happens in these situations, and we purposely keep aside. We don't cause problems. You know, we're not those kind of people. I don't know what, what anybody believes. Some people in the music business are. They especially go out to cause problems and to get lots of big write-ups and it always happens to us we always get involved in these things not through our own choosing Mick, Keith and the rest of the STP criminals were booked at Warwick Police Station where they sat for their mugshots and pressed three sets of prints local, state and federal I mean then the cops at the station were very nice and, oh, well, you know, 
left nothing to do with me. I just got a book here and this, you know, and they took our shoes off and our belts off and put us all in individual cells. But still there's guys across the row, right, who are... Yeah, but you can't actually see him. You can only hear, you know, who the fuck are you? What have they got you for? Was Mick Freak fired? He's really upset. Or? He was at the time, yeah. But I mean, he quickly regained. I mean, in the jail, he managed to carve his name. <laughs> I couldn't find space in mine, so it's covered already. On the other side of the bars, Stone's tour manager Peter Rudge is in his element. He secretly loves when things go wrong. This is when he comes alive. It's battlefield conditions. He's working three phones, arranging lawyers to free the Stones, relaying information to Chip Monk at the garden, and combing through the yellow pages to book a rickety old school bus to schlep the non-jailbirds up to Boston. Sax player Bobby Keys won't go. He's still trying to get arrested. Hey, you pigs, I'm still waiting. Bobby, Rudge says, the bus, please, the bus. I ain't going nowhere without my buddies. After about five minutes of arguing, cajoling, and pleading, Rudge manages to pack keys on the bus, which rolls out for Boston. Then, in the police station, the phone rings. Is there a Mr. Peter Rudge here? Someone calls out. Rudge warily raises his hand. Uh, Mr. Rudge, it's, uh, the mayor of Boston, sir. A reverent silence spreads throughout the station as Rudge goes to the phone to speak with Mayor White. The sergeant who hauled everyone in at the airport looks on with regret. He doesn't say another word the rest of the night. Rudge here. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. I understand that, sir. We do, sir. No, sir. I promise we can get them there, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You may call me back here, sir. Yes, sir. He then passes the phone to the chief of police. Mayor White explains that he wants them to release the stones so that they can play in Boston. It's a matter of public safety. And can you give them a police escort too, he asks, as though it were normal for police to give motorcades to people they've just arrested. A pair of limousines are obtained, quite possibly the last ones in all of Rhode Island. Word is spread about Warwick's very important prisoners, and the crowd outside the station has reached Beatlemania levels. Everyone piles into the limos and they're off, flanked by motorcycles and cruisers with flashing lights like a presidential procession. Everyone has their eye on the clock. It's pushing midnight. These kids have been in the hall for over five hours. How long could they reasonably be expected to wait? We got out of the police station, it was midnight or something like that. The kids outside the police station, right? Like hundreds of them. Nobody could take it seriously, you know. I mean, even the arrests were sort of so close to seeing the Keystone Cops I've seen in real life, you know. It was really... Arresting, arresting. The whole experience left Mick royally pissed off. Everything was stupid. It was all just a waste of time and it was all so petty. I mean, it just shows you, though, how they are still, how it is, you know, and why it shouldn't be like that. Keith was a little more zen about it all. 
I wasn't on the road on tour, it got me mad and got, you know, but I just accept those things on, they all just sort of part of the game on tour. Anything that turns up is just part of the script, you know, and you just sort of ride it, you know, it's the only way. Andy Dickerman, the photographer who was just having a quiet night in his photo lab before this all began, has been watching all this unfold in horror. He assumed the cops would let the stones go. He had no idea that he'd just single-handedly created a news story on his own, one that threatened to burn Boston to the ground. It feels bad, and so does the fallout. He becomes authentically gun-shy for a time when it comes to matters of the camera, and he takes down the poster of the stones that had held a spot of honor in his dining room. While this whole thing was happening, I felt so bad about it, because, and I still do, I didn't want to hurt the stones. I didn't want to give them any trouble. But you want to take pictures? I was sort of torn between wanting to leave them alone because I wanted to left alone, and, and doing what I know what I knew should be done. It was really a nightmarish experience, especially since then. Uh, and hate mail and, and, and have you phone calls. And, 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 yeah, and I'd like to see them after we talk. Oh, I don't know. Just scattered around. And, or actually, one, one was a, a threatening letter I gave to the uh, FBI. Really? Yeah. What did it say? It, was, it threatened me. To yeah. kill you? Uh, I think it, 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 it didn't say that outright, but it, I think it got went across. And phone calls to this house? Or? Yeah, a lot also by the news media and by, by other people, and relatives and friends who I hadn't heard from in years. And I'm, I'm used to giving publicity to other people, not to having it myself. And oh, I was accused of wanting it. It's definitely not the case. I didn't want it and do not want it. The only person in a tougher spot than Andy Dickerman was Boston Mayor Kevin White. Springing the stones from an out-of-state jail was just the first item on his unenviable to-do list. So Boston's on fire, and all the fire guys are deployed, and... Kevin White, who I interviewed, classic, right out of the movie, black and white movie, Irish, Frank Skeffington kind of guy, you know, has the accent, grew up in Dorchester, you know, clueless, clueless, but seizing the moment of publicity. What has happened now? The MTA has shut down. This means that none of these drunk, belligerent, rolling stones aficionado can get home by public transport. Okay, this is the old days. The T, no. You could put 18,000 people in a cab. Mayor White activates an emergency protocol to keep the public transport system open a few hours later. Then he heads to the garden. Stone stage manager Chip Monk is grateful to see him. He's been forbidden from telling the crowd anything about the arrest. Everyone's afraid the kids will rip the garden into splinters and sawdust if they hear the stones are in jail. To kill time, Chip has been reduced to reading novels aloud over the PA. It's getting desperate. Now, Boston Garden, 18,000. We come to the venerable Chipmunk, okay? Monk is charged with keeping 18,000 drunk, stoned, progressively angrier white Bostonians occupied. And and listen, credit to Chip. God love him. His pre-show music was drop dead. It was mega hip, you know. It was like listening to a great DJ. He had great musical taste. 
Chip has now played every fucking song he's ever had on any cassette, tape recorder, any device that he's got. And he's accessing stuff. He's Chip. He's wired in. And he's coming out, okay? And this is great. It's kind of like Bill Graham's stuff about how to manage a crowd. He's coming out like the fairy godmother. And he's lying through his teeth, you know? Hey, listen. We've had some troubles, you know, but we need you to help us. That you always bring them in. Like, we are not messing with you. We love you. Stones are on, and he's making it up. He's getting phone calls. It took forever to get, for the lawyer to get him out. Now they're in the damn limos. Okay, what has happened now? Chip looks. Here's the mayor. Okay, great. Sensing the crowd may respond positively to a fresh face, Chip suggests Mayor White go out and level with his constituency. Everyone knows it's a risky move. Sending the city's number one authority figure out there to tell 18,000 people that their idols have been arrested could be a disaster all the way around. If he blows it, the kids might sweep over the stage, tear off his tie, box his ears, and set fire to his suit. And then the rest of Boston. But they've tried everything else. Why not the truth? Chip with the great voice, you know. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you not the Rolling Stones, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, the mayor of Boston, Kevin White. Crowd goes crazy. Fuck you, Kevin! Fuck you! They're screaming. I don't know if they're throwing shit. They don't want to see Kevin White. They want to see Mick Jagger, man. I'm Kevin White. To his great credit, he was no small guy. He was really good at this. Needs your help. Same thing. Picks right up without having heard Chip say this. They're on their way. If you say, if you be good, very godfather, you be not, just hang with her. You will get to see the Rolling Stones tonight. And walks off to, yeah, Kevin, yeah, man. Like just, well, Also, while we are here, our city is burning correct, down. Correct. He our city him. is burning he down and him. they need me and I need to leave here. But I promise you that if you obey and, and be calm here, I will bring the Rolling Stones here. You will have your show. He has created an action movie. It's like, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. I have to go jet off. I'm going to be putting out that fire myself. But you, what are they going to do? Say, hey, man, stay here. Like you, he's saving Boston. Mayor White will be rewarded for his actions this night with an autographed STP tour poster. Before he goes, he makes an appeal to the crowd. I got the stones out of jail. Now I need you to do something for me. As I stand here, half my city's in flames. I'm going to take some of the police away from here. They're needed in the South End. I want you to do me a favor. Please behave. After the concert ends, just go home. I appreciate it. Thank you. And wouldn't you know it, everybody did. Just one of the many minor miracles that day. Another miracle was that the Stones themselves actually made it. Gary Stromberg was along for the ride. 
were in a limousine literally racing because we know that the this, this situation, that they're holding an audience and that it's very late and that we got to get there and do the show. And we are under a police escort, a motorcycle escort. We're heading down the freeway. Cars are being moved aside. We're going probably 100 miles an hour. Sirens, the whole, you know, presidential <laughs> escort. And as we're approaching the city of Boston, off in the skyline, we see that there are orange flames very distinctly. And we think that the city is being burned down because we're not there that this is the reaction that they, the city of Boston and the fans have had to them being denied this concert. And so the initial response was hysteria because this is very funny, that they would burn a city down because they were missing a concert. But we couldn't think of any other explanation. And I, we didn't have a radio or anything that I remember that would explain what was going on. So we were just arriving under the belief that this is what was happening. In addition to being very funny to us, it also caused a lot of anxiety because what were we heading into? I mean, it looked like you know, we're going into a war zone, you know, to go do a concert. It was totally surreal. It was like Apocalypse Now, you know, we were just, we were entering the apocalypse. It became a little more friendly as they neared the Boston Garden. Fans lined the road, emitting an almighty, yeah! as the limos pass. It was a sight that Keith Richards would never forget. Was the whole itself covered with kids? So you came to it? Or, uh, yeah, there was thousands of people looking out the windows and sitting on fire escapes and sort of waiting for them. They knew we were coming. You know, they heard that we'd gotten out and were on our way. The whole route was lined, actually. There were kids waiting all along the way. It must have been amazing, right? It's weird as hell. So, Gary, we're talking, and I know it's hard to remember. It's like one of Yeah, it's late. You're not there yet. It's 1, 1.30. Yeah. The crowd has been in the house since 7, 7 p.m. They've been there for five hours. Stevie's been off for three and a half. You maybe get to Boston Garden at 1 o'clock in the morning? Yeah, I think that's when they went on around 1 o'clock. Chip Monk has been sharing a blow-by-blow account of their progress towards the arena. Now it gives him no small pleasure to announce, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. The place explodes, with kids slapping high five and pounding their seats as though this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. Charlie Watts kicks in the downbeat, and an electric rush of compressed energy and anticipation flows across the synapse that separates the stage and the audience. For one long moment, they're all one, all criminals all outlaws, with the Stones playing music for the very people that freed them. Did you feel remarkable when you went on stage? Yeah, it felt good to be on stage. It was good, The whole thing, I mean, it just felt good to be able to get up on stage after all that. I mean, we wouldn't have made it except for the fact that there was 18,000 kids waiting for us. Otherwise, nobody would get in the ship with a stadium there until the next day. Jagger did a full set with as much energy as he'd ever done, and this was exhausting. The night that we had spent up until this point was pretty tiring. In jail and the tension, you know, the getting out of jail and all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing that he was able to do it. <laughs> he was magnificent that night, as I remember. And 
from what I could tell with the Stones, they were just working off of adrenaline. They owed this audience something because of you know, how long they've been waiting there. People go home feeling they've done more than just see a concert. They've participated in an event, a happening. It's a throwback to the older days. Remember when the Stones got busted? Yeah, were you there too? Far out. There's an interesting coda to their New England visit, at least according to Bobby Keys. This is what's strange now. Like at night in Boston, we went to play. The <laughs> God power is, failed in Rhode Island. God is on your side. And it stayed off until we finished the set. When we finished the set, <laughs> the power came back on. That's lovely. Moments before showtime at their second and final gig at the Boston Garden, the skies over Rhode Island go from gray to black. Lightning tears through the cloud banks and the thunder rolls. A full-blown summer storm starts dumping wind and water. From Warwick to Woonsocket, the state goes dark. All of it. No TVs, no radios, no record players, nothing. The state of Rhode Island has been plunged into a medieval darkness. And it stays that way until the Stones walk off stage in Boston at 11.30. Blame it on whoever you like. Executive produced by Noel Brown and Jordan Runtalk. Edited and sound designed by Noel Brown and Michael Alder June. Original music composed and performed by Michael Alder June and Noel Brown, with additional instruments performed by Chris Suarez, Nick Johns Cooper, and Josh Thane. Vintage Rolling Stones audio, courtesy of the Robert Greenfield Archive at the Charles Deering McCormick Library of Special Collections in Northwestern University Libraries. Stones Touring Party is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. 
Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.